You are listening to From Sobriety to Recovery with Jesse Mogul. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to From Sobriety to Recovery. I am your host, Jesse Mogul. I am in addiction recovery. I am thrilled to have you here. Happy to announce I got my last essay back, 117 out of 125. Substantially better than the 80% I got on the one I did that entire episode about. Go back and listen to that one. Circumstances, thoughts, feelings, actions, results. I do believe it was 229. I think it was just last week's. And this has been one whole doozy of a week. And I'm getting better with writing these essays. And every single week, there's a two, 250-word essays. There's two discussion questions. 200 words, let's just say, for each one of those, and then a 1,250-word essay. And so it's pretty heavy because there's so much that goes into these. And, you know, there's that part of me that wants to do well. And I look at my desire to know things and be able to discuss lots of different things. I know that came from, as a child, we moved around a lot. I didn't have a ton of friends. And my dad was very hard on me about my grades. And I wanted to have this ability to read these books and then go talk with him about what I had read. And it was more about being able to talk about the things that I read and not having him tell me that I was wrong or tell me that I was telling him incorrect information and less about knowing everything and being the smartest person in the room. I really have very little desire to be the smartest person in the room. And in fact, one of my mentors once told me, if you ever are the smartest person in the room, you need to find a different room. And whether I necessarily, it seems a little bit insulting to everybody that I would happen to be in that room with. Hey, everybody, um, I think I'm smarter than you. Fuck off. I'm going into the next room. <laughs> I don't think I got, I don't got that. I don't got that. To me, if I'm in a room where other people don't know some of the things that I know and they have a curiosity to know these things, then let's just get together with some pen and a pad. Let's get in the lab and let's get into talking and teaching. And that's one of the reasons I love this show. Like I don't go off to learn all this stuff to be Mr. Smarty Pants as much as I just like to know this stuff. And I know when I've integrated it more thoroughly into my brain when I can talk about it, like I talk about so many different subjects on this show, very fluidly with uh, very little show notes, just really off the top of my head. Um, So few of these episodes are actually written down. Um, I just take in a bunch of information and like, oh, that's what to this week's is going to be about. And so with is addiction a disease, I went the opposite way I just described. And I over researched for this one because I am reading a book called, um, let's go to it. It's by Kapuzian Stouffer. Um, I will put it into the show notes. It's Foundations of Addiction Counseling. For this episode, I'm going to call it FAC. I'm going to say from the FAC book. Occasionally, I will say Foundations of Addiction Counseling, just in case you have forgotten what the acronym FAC stands for. But I will be saying FAC quite frequently because a lot of this information that we're going to utilize to discuss addiction as a disease is going to come directly from this substance abuse counseling book, Foundations of Addiction Counseling, FAC by Capuzzi and Stouffer. Not really sure, but I will be sure to put it in the show notes. So if it's something that you want to get your hands on, you can go out there and you can find it and you can get it for yourself because I am sure it's available somewhere. I got it for free through my university because I already paid them $2,000 for a class. (laughs) 
they were more than happy to give me a digital book on top of it. They were very awesome. And I will say, Grand Canyon University is blowing my mind. For as many uh, online reviews as I read uh, that were not favorable toward them, I have had none of those issues with what people complained about. And sometimes I read reviews and, I, and I'm and i very mindful of asking myself, is this a product problem with the product or is this user error? And a lot of the ones, like especially on Amazon, I go and I'll read the one, two, three stars because I want to find out if the product is a piece of crap, what is the worst thing that I can expect to happen? Is it just going to break in my hands or is it going to set my house on fire? Like I want to know these things about it. And a lot of the times when I read these reviews, I'm like, okay, that's user error. Like this is a, you know, $14, you know, ring light. And you're probably, based off the way you're talking about it, slamming it around your office or you're taking it on set and dropping it. No wonder it broke. Like treat things with, you know, kindness and (laughs) gentleness. They'll probably last you a long time. So then I go and I read these reviews about Grand Canyon University. And, you know, I did read a lot of them that was like, okay, that sounds like user error. That sounds like perhaps you could have done these other three or four things. And maybe there would have been a different experience. And who am I to judge anybody else's experience? I don't even know these people, but I do know my experience and my experience has been phenomenal. And I can't wait for the next, you know, two years until I get into the practicum and internship portion of this. But I will say, man, oh man, is it a lot of work. And it's because it's the first class is on substance abuse and addiction. It's been a lot of fun work because this is right in my wheelhouse. This is a subject that I cared very dearly about. So it's been super awesome. There are certainly going to be other classes coming up that aren't going to be nearly as enjoyable. <laughs> like, I don't know, the one about documentation and paperwork. I mean, I get it. That's super important to document things accurately, but I don't think I'm going to enjoy two months on documentation nearly as much as I'm enjoying two months on addiction recovery information. But that's what's led us to doing an episode on is addiction uh, disease. And there's so much awesome about this. And just remember, if I say FAC, then we're going to be talking about the Foundations of Addiction Counseling book by Capuzzi and Stouffer. Um, You can always go and, uh, again, it's going to be in the show notes. Feel free to go check that out. Also, I am going to be running through a substantial amount of different kinds of addiction models. There's an entire chapter in here on the etiology, uh, the history of addiction, and like where it might come from, how it might show itself, yada, yada, yada. And as I was reading through these, I was like, man, this is pretty awesome. I was like, this is some, this would be some great information to share with my listeners. And so here we are, we're going to be discussing this. And um, as we do this now, I'm just like sitting here, like getting it all set up. Uh, I'm going to drop some super, super interesting information on the history of um, alcohol and drugs and addiction in our society. So absolutely look forward to that. That's actually going to come very, very soon. And also remember that I might bring up neuro-linguistic programming from time to time. I am a master trainer and a master practitioner of neuro-linguistic programming, which I just consider to be like a uh, sub-modality of psychology. It's the study of how the brain utilizes language to program itself. And it can be the spoken word. It can be your body language. It can be thoughts. It can be feelings. It can be pictures. It's It's the science of 
how your brain creates your reality inside of its head. And you'll, you'll hear a lot of similarities in neuro-linguistic programming with cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, emo, you know, like the uh, emotional-mental desensitization techniques, the eye movement techniques that are supposed to help people release negative emotions, uh, any kind of emotional-mental healing that allows somebody to go inside their mind and start to manipulate the pictures from the past and see them in a different way. Um, they all existed. Now, well, NLP just had a couple founders who went out and just found psychologists in their field crushing it, doing amazing work, and then just took a lot of the habits and the patterns they were using and just organized them into a book. And that's why you'll see a lot of different uh, modalities like CBT and EMDR and tapping and things of that nature also being mentioned within the NLP field because NLP just gobbled them all up and said, hey, this is what's happening out there. All of this stuff is useful. We're just going to compile it all into one book. Um, NLP has often been called the lost owner's manual of the mind. I don't necessarily consider it to be the lost owner's manual of the mind. I consider it to have been the organized owner's manual of the mind. Because all of this stuff existed, it wasn't lost, it was just not organized in a coherent fashion and slapped with a label called neuro-linguistic programming. And there's a ton of books on this stuff. You can go out there and dive into it even more. There's a purple one I love and a gray one I love. And if you go on Amazon and type in NLP, you'll notice, you'll see the purple one and you'll see the gray one with a little bit of blue on the cover. Those are my two favorites um, outside, of course, of the manuals that I've created for the courses that I teach. And I bring that NLP up again because I will reference it from time to time, and I just wanted to make sure you all understood that acronym. So we've got Foundations of Addiction Counseling, FAC, and we've got NLP, and there's a whole lot more coming, but I want to get straight into this. So let's talk about first, before we get into, is addiction a disease? Let's get into the history of how this country actually had its issues with alcohol well before anybody ever really wanted to try to figure out whether it was a disease or a moral failing or any of that jazz. And it actually, if you want to go all the way back, all the way, a long, long time ago, a long, long time ago to December 25th of 1621. Yes, all the way back to 1621 when William Bradford, the governor of the Plymouth Colony, decided to ban Christmas. He prohibited the celebration of Christmas. If you celebrated Christmas, you were fined five shillings. I don't know how much a shilling is, but I do remember Scrooge McDuck paying, uh, was he, I don't know, Scrooge McDuck, I don't know, he was always a duck, but Scrooge in the Christmas Carol or whatever, in the Mickey Mouse one, only giving Mickey Mouse like one shilling for working on Christmas Eve, and I'm not even sure that was worth a, a thing of coal. But anyways, five shillings, it clearly was enough that it kept people from celebrating Christmas all the way back in 1621, because Christmas had turned into, they believed it had turned more pagan, and that people were throwing crazy parties and celebrating it in a way that wasn't respectful to honoring uh, Jesus and God and the Bible. And he believed that you celebrate God on Sunday, and that's the only day you celebrate God. So don't you dare celebrate Jesus's birthday on any other day but Sunday. So it's outlawed. Now, the pilgrims had their own issues with drinking. And in fact, the boats that brought them over and dropped them off on Plymouth Rock chose Plymouth Rock, not on purpose, but on accident. Um, really, it was like, just get the damn pilgrims off the boat because the pilgrims were drinking all the beer and the crew needed beer to get back over the Atlantic Ocean, back over to England. Uh, back in the day, 
this beer is about 6% according to the research that I learned. Uh, beer was the preferred mechanism for hydration because water was able to so easily get bacteria into it and cause people to be sick. But because beer is fermented, the whole yeast, hops, barley thing, I'm sure you're aware of it. <laughs> we are all after having had some kind of intoxicating beverage in our body at some point. Uh, so anyways, fermentation allowed there to not be so many microbiome bio, bi, microbiomes and organisms into the liquid. And that's why beer was the preferred. And so, yes, the pilgrims were getting smashed all the way across the Atlantic Ocean, and they got dropped off at Plymouth Rock because the captain and the crew wanted them to hell off the boat. And then down the road... <laughs> And decided to ban Christmas because they were partying too hard on Christmas Day. It became, again, you can Google this, it became a pagan holiday, uh, feasting and drinking to excess, and by goodness gracious, only celebrate Christmas on, uh, on a Sunday or don't celebrate it at all, apparently. So when we look back, at the role that alcohol played. And just, you know, you think, I mean, every, you know, we talk about the pilgrims, we talk about, um, you know, Plymouth Rock and what that was all about. You realize that alcohol was very much a part of our society at a very early developmental stage. Flash forwarding uh, up into the 1800s, um, that's when you start seeing alcohol become something that society wants to start frowning upon a little bit more. And between 1825 and 1850, some uh, some moderation abstinence groups began to form. The Washington Washington Washingtonian Washington. In Washingtonians, uh, the Total Abstinence Society formed in 1840. Uh, some more followed suit in the late 1800s, including the Women's Christian Temperance Movement, the Sisters of Sumeria, the Daughters of Temperance. There was a whole slew of them, right? So by the late 1800s, you had a really hard push towards abstinence and staying away from alcohol. Uh, and it was because of these uh, women organizations that were noticing how their husbands and their sons were, they were drinking in excess and it was turning them into not so good people. Uh, they decided, you know what, we just need alcohol out of society altogether. They really started to push this into um, our legislature at the state and then eventually federal level. And that's when the Volstead Act uh kicked off Prohibition in 1920, which is right around the same time that organized crime formed in order to make alcohol to get it to people in these speakeasies. And you can look no further than uh, the show Dukes of Hazard and how, you know, these bootleggers, um, even back in the, you know, the 50s, 60s and 70s were, you know, sort of romanticized as people that were getting away from it, you know, getting away for from the law and we're getting away with something and we're providing the the society with things that they wanted. And a lot of these bootleggers were in the South uh, where supposedly alcohol was supposed to be the most prohibited. And in fact, the roots of NASCAR are set um, by former bootleggers who were just so good at driving fast and through dirt roads and getting away from the law that they eventually turned it into a competition. So the roots of NASCAR actually lie in the bootlegging uh, world back uh, from the 60s and 70s. So anyways, we get prohibition. That, of course, sends the whole country into turmoil for the whole part of the 1920s. That gets repealed in 1933, which ironically, right around that time, 
was when marijuana uh, began to be associated with the Hispanic and African-American populations in the United States. And I remember watching a video about this. Um, the DEA no longer was going out and busting people up for speakeasies and for moonshining and all this other jazz. And the people who were running the DEA did not want to uh, lose their jobs. They did not want their organization to go away. Uh, so they just turned their attention towards marijuana. And I remember there being this propaganda film I watched. Oh, my goodness. I wish I could remember what it was. Uh, you know what? I'm going to pause real fast and see if I can find it on Google. Reefer Madness. Found it up. Found it on Google, all right. In fact, I did even go on YouTube real quick. And you can even find it on YouTube. There is a, it's a whole hour and eight minutes. Uh, apparently, somebody even uh, remastered it and put it into color. But you can find the old school one. So anyways, in the 1930s, uh, marijuana was decided it no longer could be legal. It had been it had been fine up until that point for the most part. There were some laws, but for the most part, no big deal. But the DEA needed something to go after. Movies like Reefer Madness came out. They made it look like if you smoked a joint. I remember one scene. I'm pretty sure somebody smokes a joint. This launches themselves out of a window. <laughs> I remember watching this. Tripping on acid back when I was a teenager. Being like, there is no fucking way that's what marijuana what it does to you unless there's a pizza outside that window there's no chance that somebody's stone is launching themselves out of a window um so yes the the volstead act gets thrown down in 1920 here comes prohibition that goes away in 1933 marijuana becomes this whole thing and really, uh, that's where we start seeing a lot of our current, you know, alcohol and you know, drug abuse. The whole movement towards this really forming as we uh, we're getting into that out of the World War One into World War Two range. Uh, cocaine and opium were legal during the 19th century uh, and very much favored by the middle and upper class Caucasians. Uh, but it, then uh, cocaine became illegal when it began to be associated with the African-Americans uh, following the Reconstruction era of the United States. So we're now we're looking back to, uh, you know, the late 1800s. I want to say the Civil War ended in 1861 or 1863, but don't hold me to that. So you start noticing that, you know, cocaine getting uh, outlawed, opium was first restricted in the latter part of the 19th century, which is the 1800s. For those of you who aren't aware that that's how that works. And so, uh, and again, that was because it got more associated with the Chinese immigrant workers um, out there in California with the railroads and the gold rush and all that jazz. And then marijuana was uh, legal into the 1930s when it became uh, associated uh, by white society with the uh, Mexican Americans. And so you see, again, and that's the DEA needing something to sort of go after. LSD was legal in the 1950s, but then was turned illegal in 1967 when um, President Nixon was even caught on uh, tape. That dude loved to get caught on tape saying stupid shit. Uh, <laughs> Uh, he even said uh, that his administration wanted to his administration wanted to connect hippies and African Americans with the ills of marijuana, and uh, he did a pretty damn good job on that. Last I checked, so. Now into the 70s, you start seeing a lot of formations of um, alcohol and drug abuse and uh, drug addiction type uh, organizations and administrations getting put in. The National Institute of Drug Abuse comes in in the 70s. Uh, you start seeing um, other ones coming in into the 80s and 90s. I don't need to rattle all of these off. This is stuff that I, I could, I mean, I'm sitting here looking at like 10 different acronyms. Uh, it's not 
important is to know all of the acronyms as much as it is to realize that the war on drugs started in the 1970s. It was carried on by uh, Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. Uh, that That's really the war on drugs. You know, that's when uh, MAD came out and SAD and that's when, you know, just say no and all these ideas about how to curb alcohol and drug abuse, but it was done in such a way that I just remember it was more of a joke in the 80s when I was a student than it was anything that we took serious. Like, just say no. It's like, yeah, yeah, we get that. Uh, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> really, just say no worked really great for me. Uh, and that's the issue when we start talking about the, some of these organizations and we look back at the history is that this country was really founded upon this idea of, like, hey, let's drink and have a good time. And then all of a sudden, you know, these neoconservative groups in the 1800s and the early 1900s decide that they're going to get up on a bandwagon and try to make changes that society just really didn't want. And you could have a lot of great ideas. But if you can't get the entirety of society on board, then eventually you're going to have speakeasies and you're going to have bootleggers and you're going to have organized crime forming from it. Would organized crime be what it is today if it hadn't gotten its roots you know, in society back during Prohibition? I mean, Vegas was, again, formed by these um, organized crime families in on the Northeast seeking a way to launder their money and move it into a more uh, you know easily spendable way, if you will. And there you go. Now, next thing you know, you got Vegas because, again, that really formed because of the Hoover Dam being built. So it was just this beautiful... Beautiful convergence, really, of timing for the organized crime to need a way to get its money out of the cities and get it into banks in a legal manner. And then you have the Hoover Dam getting built, and you've also got all of these different prohibition things going on. And so we see it try to clamp down on alcohol and drug use, uh, but all that really did was just send it underground. Uh, where it couldn't be monitored as much. And now you're noticing that, you know, almost all states have, you know, have legalized alcohol sales. There are some dry counties in the South, but for the most part, it's just right next door to a county that sells alcohol. And they'll generally put a liquor store right at the county line. So they know it's wanted. And even states like Oklahoma, I mean, Oklahoma legalized marijuana. Are you freaking kidding me? I mean, I was born in Oklahoma. Talk about Bible Belt USA. But they needed the revenue, so they legalized marijuana. And you know what? <laughs> I know a lot of old people smoking dope in Oklahoma. It's like it got legalized, and they were thinking all these young kids were going to run out and <laughs> fry their brains. I know a lot of 60, 70, and 80-year-olds just getting stoned out of their minds in Oklahoma. So... <laughs> You know, trying to label any particular um, demographic as the ones who might be prone to using a substance is very laughable whenever I notice uh, how the numbers actually follow suit. So there's some history about it. For those of you who ever wanted to know some history, again, I could dive so deep. I mean, I've got information in front of me on drug cartels and all that things. But I want to start getting into the models, these models of addiction, these models that the, that the FAC, the Foundations of Addiction Counseling, uses uh, that have come up. These models for explaining the, the etiology of addiction. And etiology is just a fancy word for like how it, fa- how it forms. Like the etiology, where does it begin? How, what's the foundation of it? Where is its root cause? We've got these models that go about seeking to explain the root cause of these addictions. Because there can be so many. And I do want to jump right into the disease model just because that's what this episode's about. But I absolutely would, you know, obviously highly impress upon you to keep listening because there's a lot of other cool things getting ready to come out too. Because there's a lot of other models that 
we it would be helpful for us to know. And when we get into this disease model, we're going to start talking about dopamine and serotonin. And let's a quick brief rundown of what dopamine and serotonin are. Uh, the body uses dopamine to create chemicals, uh, neorepinephrine and epinephrine. And you don't need to know what all of these do, but you do need to know that dopamine plays a huge role in how the brain processes motivation, desire, and cravings. Dopamine levels can influence mood, sleep, learning, movement, alertness, blood flow, urine output. Dopamine's got a lot. But for the sake of this conversation, we want to really impress upon you the motivation, the desire, and the cravings. That it plays an integral role in our reward system. Now, serotonin comes into play because it very much is a, a causation of your mood and your emotions. A lot of people think serotonin is a majority of it's in the brain where dopamine is, but in fact, serotonin is 90% of it is inside your gut. And I don't know the episode number, but I'm pretty sure I once did an episode called like 80 or 90 feet to happiness. That was all about how your intestines play an integral role in your mood and your emotions. And this is why if you eat a bunch of really shitty food or if you drink heavily or you're putting drugs into your system time and time again, that's messing up your gut and that's where your serotonin is. And is it any wonder you wake up the day after a pretty hard night of partying feeling like shit because you've dumped tons of dopamine into your brain all night long and it's screwed up your entire gut system so now your serotonin's also fucked and this is what we've got going on the body doesn't know how to produce dopamine it doesn't know when to produce serotonin so the whole system gets fried out so when we talk about dopamine being the thing that causes the craving it does it, it is what causes the craving but it's also working in conjunction with the entirety of the limbic system and we're going to get it more into that but it's it's just good to know that you've got the dopamine and it does crave you out the door and it does that because it was always meant to be set upon for the craving and the reward system to work in concert with one another because of back in the day we were cave people and outside the cave was pretty freaking scary. There were gigantic monsters like saber tooth cats and woolly mammoths and God knows how big the spiders and the snakes were. <laughs> but I mean, you can imagine if, if a woolly mammoth was like four times the size of an elephant and a saber tooth cat was like three times the size of a lion. I can only imagine how big the roaches were. So you leave the cave, and that's where people die. And so you needed to have something that caused you to crave sustenance, food, so much that it got you out of the comfort and safety of your cave and set you about to go hunt for some food. And, um, you know, the men would go out and hunt. Women would go out and gather. That's just how it was. And it, you find a berry, and you taste it, and it's delicious. Then your dopamine floods and says, mmm, that was delicious. Serotonin's released through the gut saying, hey, let's remember that that we ate that really awesome red berry and it made it feel delicious. And now serotonin create a feedback loop. So when you see that delicious red berry, you know that it's safe to eat. Or if you walked for miles to get to that bush to find that red berry, that your brain will remember where that red berry was. Now, conversely, if somebody next to you eats a blackberry and then they die in front of you, then your brain is also going to release dopamine that says, I do not crave that fucking berry. <laughs> So there, it works all together. And so let's get into this. Let me, I say let's get into this disease model as if we haven't already gotten into this disease model. So if you're looking for an easy answer to this, yes. Yes. Addiction's a disease. 
It's very misunderstood, but it is a disease of the brain. And a lot of people might want to push back against it. And we'll get into that when we discuss moral models and some of these other models. But addiction is a disease. Now, if you're trying to use it again as a way to, you know, to excuse your way out of all of your behaviors for 22 years, like I did, that's how long I got wasted for it, not trying to excuse my behaviors by causing it to be a disease. Because, look, I did those things. I knowingly made all of those decisions. I just didn't give a fuck. All right? I was so much more into the, to the substance and the use that I didn't really give a shit what I was doing to other people. It mattered to me that I was getting intoxicated. All right? So whether it's alcohol, pills, gambling, sex, porn, whatever else I've ever said, everything that can possibly be addictive, right? overcoming addiction is not simple. It's not necessarily easy. Just because you know stopping and exercising greater impulse control or willpower, if only it was that easy. Now there is a book that I'm reading. It's called the DSM. It's this entire uh, book. Let me see if I can reach it from where I'm strapped. Let me see. I've got all right. <laughs> There's this. You should see this book. If I were to hit somebody with this book, it would probably knock them out cold. It's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM five TR. And it's the fifth edition of the book, and it's got these severity levels where mild, medium, and severe dictate where your um, addiction is. And so, yes, those that are on the more mild to moderate spectrum might just be able to stop and will power their way through it, and eventually the habit of drinking goes away. But for those of us who have sought sobriety and recovery, uh, we would have answered yes to a majority of those questions. I am going to do an episode on what those questions are at a later date, but we're already 30 minutes in. I can't add that into this one. It's going to be a two-hour long episode. So because addiction develops in our pleasure center, where the dopamine and all of this is going on, it gets overwhelmed. And then the simplest way for me to say it is, and this is how it was explained to me by Dr. Dr. Trisha Whitty when she came onto the show, and whether it was on the show or whether it was off mic, I remember her saying, look, when it comes to the human body, the most pleasurable experience that the human body can produce on its own or with another person, as I'm getting ready to make very evident, is an orgasm. That is when 100% of dopamine, I mean, you're just, whoosh, that's it. It is the highest of highs that the human body and mind can reach is orgasm. When you add in cocaine, it raises that up to 300%. And methamphetamines, 3,000%. So if the brain is normally used to just an orgasm getting to be the 100% top of the tops that it can get, and then all of a sudden, you introduce cocaine or meth, and now it's getting 300 to 3,000% of that pleasurable experience. Are you kidding me? <laughs> is it any wonder? I mean, sex is great on its own. Imagine you were able to throw in all that other stuff. So now you can start to see how it messes with the brain and it plays with that reward system. It messes up the neural pathways and the role of dopamine. And that's where dopamine attaches to addiction. Because addiction doesn't just start the moment we take uh, an addictive substance, right? You want to talk about the root of addiction. We can start talking about the suffering and the pain and the trauma and all of those things. And then all of a sudden somebody introduces this amazing addictive substance into your life that allows your brain to go above its preset threshold of what it can aspire is 100% of its most 
amazing satisfaction it'll ever get is from an orgasm. And then all of a sudden you start adding in beer and pills and things that you can snort and inhalants. And is it any wonder? So now you've got the brain getting messed up. The dopamine's starting to get released because it's like, wow, I was feeling like shit, but now I feel happy. Dopamine gets dropped and it says, this is it. When I want to feel happy, this is what we're going to do. We're going to send out the craving alert to get our hands up on some seriously good shit. I mean, this is what happens. And it's happening, and we don't even realize it's happening. So when we start thinking about the primitive parts of the brain and this reward system being developed to reinforce these behaviors to survive, such as eating and drinking and getting foods that reward us by sending out dopamine, which gives us this sense of satisfaction, now we want to eat again. Is it any wonder that when we develop an addiction to a substance is because the brain starts to chemically and biologically change. This The addictive substance literally triggers this outsized response, and now that with the, the brain's out of control. It's like, Wah! it's like roller coaster central, right? So instead of it just being a, a simple uh, increase of surge of dopamine, uh, these drugs that we can abuse, these opioids, the cocaines, the nicotines, they flood the reward pathway. You know, some of my research said 10 times more than a natural reward. Well, Dr. Trisha Whitty comes on and says 100% for, let's say, sex, right? Food, I don't give a damn how good the steak is. <laughs> it's not sex. But if you're getting 100%, which is maximum threshold with an orgasm, 10 times that would be 1,000. So it is absolutely within that parameter that she laid out. And again, you know, who is scientifically coming up with these numbers? But we know, I mean, it's come on, it's, there's a reason why now the brain is so easily able to associate this high level of craving to this substance, right? And now all of a sudden you've got uh, us achieving these pleasurable sensations uh, that becomes more and more and more important, right? And when it, I mean, let's think about it. sex. You need the consensual uh, compliance of another person. Drinking 15 beers, you just need your own compliance of, with in coordination with your bank account and a mode of transportation to get the alcohol into your hand, let alone any of those other things. Yes, you need other people, but when you finally score your drugs, you could run off into a corner and do them all on your own. You don't need anybody else's consent or compliance. <laughs> So is it any wonder that all of a sudden these addictive substances become more and more a part of what we crave? It gets in there and it starts to, again, manipulate the dopamine, gets inside the limbic system, and it does all of this stuff that really begins to absolutely positively shift what's going on inside of our heads. When we get into this disease model, has the FAC, FAC talks about it, uh, this was actually beginning to get developed in the 1960s. And in fact, um, in this book, in, in the Foundations of Addiction Counseling, FAC book, it talks about how Benjamin Rush, the Surgeon General of George Washington's Revolutionary Army, actually began to write things about how addiction was a disease as far back as then. I mean, George Washington was the general of the army that won us the Revolutionary War in 1770. <laughs> so this has clearly been a thing for quite some time. So when we talk about the context of the disease model, addiction is viewed as a disease rather than being secondary to something else, that it is literally the switching, the changing. And it's consistent with the concept that we are irreversibly changing our brain, that it, that it is now chronic and it is now incurable. 
And that's really what I want to make sure that we stress before we get too far away from this when it comes to what is this uncurable. Because addiction is defined, and this is according to um, the SAMHSA website, and in accordance also with a paper called The Substance Use Disorder Defined by NIDA and SAMHSA. And SAMHSA is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health uh, Service Association. Maybe I'm wrong about service part. Uh, let's. You think I would remember this because I'm on this damn website. Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. I wasn't too far off, actually. And uh, you can always just type in SAMHSA into the um, computer. And then the National Institute on Drug Abuse is NIDA. And so uh, they put out a paper that talked about how addiction is defined as a chronic relapsing disorder characterized by compulsive drug seeking continued use despite harmful consequences and long-lasting changes in the brain. It is considered both a complex brain disorder and a mental illness. Addiction is the most severe form of a full spectrum of substance use disorders and is a medical illness caused by repeated misuse of substances or a substance. And it's important for you to realize that people put a lot of thought into that. Right, we—it's a disorder characterized by compulsive drug seeking, continued use despite harmful consequences, long-lasting changes to the brain, long-lasting, and that's those changes to the brain that cements this as a disease. That's where we start to say that it's chronic and uncurable. And when it, in the book FAC, it says this about incurable. Once the individual has a disease, according to the disease model, it never goes away. And there is no treatment method that will enable the individual to use again without the high probability that the addict will revert to problematic use of the drug of choice. Okay, that's right there. Right When it says incurable, it doesn't mean that you can never be cured and that you're going to always be drinking or you're always going to be snorting or you're always going to be swallowing. It doesn't mean that that part's not curable. You can stop using. You can get into recovery. You can get you get into sobriety. You can walk your steps. You can do your Four Noble Truths. There's a lot of things that we've done. Obviously, there are millions upon millions of people who have achieved sobriety and long-term recovery. So that part of it. It's again, we're not we're not wanting to use the word I'm cured. That's why we don't say we're cured. That's why we say that we're in long-term recovery if you're in lo- young people in recovery. They say they're in long-term recovery. I say I'm in addiction recovery. So we don't say that we're recovered because we realize that it's chronic and it's incurable. This is what Matthew Perry said whenever he did the 60 minutes thing. He's like if I ever say that I'm cured, know that that's a red flag. And it is because this is incurable because once we have crossed this invisible line, that we didn't even know was there. But at some point, we crossed it, and we are now into the zone where we have rung the bell. We are Pavlov's dogs. We now know exactly what the feedback loop is. Feel sad, get drunk, feel happy. Be happy, get drunk, be happier. Have anxiety, get drunk, be less full of anxiety. Be calm, get drunk, feel calmer. We've already, we've created the loop. The loop has been made. So when we think about is addiction a disease, it is. Right, because the science proves that it is. The idea that addiction is both chronic and incurable is the reason that addicts who are maintaining sobriety refer to themselves as being recovered or recovering rather than recovered. Pardon the slip up there, because that's important. 
to realize that we are recovering. We are not recovered. Just like somebody who would have diabetes would say, well, yeah, I have insulin, therefore I am, you know, I'm, I'm controlling my diabetes. Or somebody with cancer would say it's in remission. And yes, I get that this is when everybody wants to jump on their little soapbox and start saying, how dare you equate cancer to alcoholism? How dare you say diabetes and uh, Crohn's disease is the same thing as alcoholism? I didn't say shit. I'm just reading the facts from a book with that literally hundreds upon hundreds of scientists have put their effort into, right? You can think whatever you want to think. And more than likely, you're already on board with the various models that exist. It's the other people who aren't, you know, uh, with this affliction, who aren't with the substance abuse disorder, that they're the ones who don't, don't have the misuse. They're the ones who want to sit here and say, no, it's a moral failing, you fucking loser. Maybe you should just stop being so lazy and get out there and get a job. It's okay. Billionaires are alcoholics. Tell me they don't have a job. So I don't think it has anything to do with laziness as much as it has to do with the mental. And we're going to get into those models now because the disease model, um, it is controversial. And a lot of people might want to push back because they think that if you accept the disease model, then that means that you are rejecting the moral model, right? That it's no longer a morality issue. Right now, all of a sudden, you know, insurance companies have to cover it. Now, all of a sudden, society has to treat it a different way. And it's been looked at this way for so long. No, no, it's a moral failing. It can't possibly be a disease because now we have to have empathy for these individuals and fuck them. And if that's how people want to be, then you have to respect their model of the world. And if you can't, if you can't affect it or direct it, accept it. And or no longer have that person in your life or just mute them whenever they want to go off on a tangent about how you are a morally corrupt individual. I will not for a moment deny that I did some very morally corruptible, inexcusable, irresponsible, selfish things when I was an addict. But it was just part of what was going on within me. Was I, was I lacking some level of morality? Absolutely. And was it tied to my addiction? Absolutely. Right? Because now that I am sober and in recovery, I do not act that way anymore. There was a morality that it was that alcohol and drugs were taking away from me, but I'm not going to sit here and say that I was a morally corruptible soul and it had nothing else to do with the way that the brain was working. So we know that there's irreversible progression of an addiction through stages. And it's happening. And the thing is, is that when people, I'll just try to say this as simply as possible. When people try to be concrete and label something black and white with science, it can be very difficult because a lot of different studies can do, use a lot of different hypotheses, a lot of different people, a lot of different things, and they can come up with something completely different. What we're looking for is a consistency within the models, a consistency within the studies that have been done. And there is a consistency that shows, scientific proof that shows that drugs and alcohol and other addictive substances, whether they're things that you imbibe, literally take through your mouth or, or through your nose or through your lungs, right? There's, there's the substance abuse addictions and there's the substance use addictions. We don't call it abuse anymore. And then there's also process addictions like porn and gambling and shopping and in your cell phone and all that other jazz. And process addictions are also rewiring your brain. This is why somebody can, you know, literally sit for four hours combing the internet shopping, right? Cause it's, it's getting that dopamine serotonin feedback loop involved. And when something 
changes the way that the host would normally behave or respond to a particular situation. And when something's introduced to it that changes the way that the host would normally, again, respond or behave, and it begins to change things on the cellular level, then it becomes a disease. Then it begins to start to shift things. Right? It's, it's here. It's in the science. But it's great. So now we know this. So now let's move past that. Because if somebody is sitting here like, no, why, why are you saying it's a disease? Are you trying to take away any culpability that you have to your addiction? No, no, I'm not. I'm just simply trying to get everybody else to understand that the brain has changed and the brain can also heal. And I think that's the part that I want to really stress here is that, yes, it's a disease, but that doesn't just allow us to say, oh, well, disease, not my problem. I get the disease. I can't stop myself from behaving this way because that's bull. What, what, what have I said in the past? It's, it's only self-sabotage when it's outside of your awareness. But once it's inside of your awareness, it's just shitty choice. I remember saying that for like 20 or 30 episodes. The family that I'm currently helping with their daughter in the rehab center, she has been saying that whenever I go and have meetings with her. Hey, I got the disease. I can't stop this behavior. I'm like... <laughs> But you know you're doing this, and you know that it's not working for your family. You know it's destroying your life. Yeah, but I got the disease. I have no choice. I'm like, but you do, because you know you have a choice, right? It's You were no longer in a dark room. The lights have been turned on. Now you're just making a shitty choice. So if the addict is trying to use the disease model, has the reasoning, the rationale, the mental gymnastics opportunity to convince themselves that they are, a, they are an addict, and it's incurable, and it's chronic, and they can never be different, then that's irresponsible. That's no. Very rarely will I say no on the show the way I just did, but no. no. We can understand that it's a it's a disease because that helps us understand that the brain has changed. But the brain is, it's neuroplasticity. This is the foundation of neuro-linguistic programming, that we can go into our brain and we can change it. Right? We understand that there's post-alcohol um, withdrawal syndromes. We understand that there's going to be a detox and there's, and there's going to be traumatic experiences of the mind, body, and soul as you're going through these withdrawals and experiencing these cravings. We know this stuff is happening, but we also know that the longer that we keep this intoxicating thing out of our lives or that we, if it's a process like overeating, the longer we go without binge eating, or if it's gambling or shopping, the longer we go without, you know, chronically shopping. It's one thing to go to Walmart and buy food that you need. It's another thing, you know, to go on Amazon at three in the morning and just start buying everything because it's Amazon Prime Day, right? And it's like, hey, honey, uh, can't pay the bills. It would be really cool if we could, but apparently we needed 14,000 Barbie dolls, right? I'm making up random examples here, but you understand that. So we'll move past it. It's just that it's a disease. The brain has changed, but the brain can also heal. Just like with many other diseases, if they're caught early enough, the brain can heal. The body can heal. The mind can heal itself, right? Just like with, you know, there's there's like stages of cancer. There are stages of Crohn's. There's stages of this. Yes, if somebody's been chronically going at it with cocaine and alcohol for 50 years, their brain is going to be substantially changed. And it might be more difficult, but it's not impossible. It's just going to take more effort. And it's probably going to take a big treatment team to help out. Now that we've decided to go ahead and accept addiction as a disease, because we know that it changes the brain. It, it goes in there. It messes around with the limbic system, right? That's where the dopamine is. That's the pleasure center of the brain. It's all in there. And so it's messing around with things. 
And you can always go Google and watch more videos on this. I just wanted to be able to cover it utilizing this book uh, because it's pretty impressive how they've been able to lay all this stuff out. Um, now, let's discuss some of the other models. And again, we might dive into addiction being a disease more later on. Uh, I really tried to sit here and write out tons and tons and tons and tons of notes for this. And honestly, it just gets so convoluted and complicated when I try to do that without being on the microphone. Because... I, I don't even know what I'm going to say. And I just prefer to get on and say it and just see how it just sort of flies out of my mouth, honestly. Um, because it just it just seems more fun that way. I mean, if I had to be honest with you. It's just more fun, you know, when we just start to discuss this this way. Because I'm like, eh, let's just wing it. Um, according to one of my uh, personality uh, meta patterns, whatever, I run myself through my own NLP practices that my brain actually works a lot better when it has a loose outline to go with and then just starts to talk and just starts to go over things. And so that is what I felt like we needed to discuss, that the brain is getting changed and the dopamine and the serotonin and these neurotransmitters and everything is getting rewired. And when things um, come into the system and rewire and change you at a cellular, biological and neurological structure, they start to change those things about you. That is the like poster child for a disease. Something is introduced into your system and begins to alter the way that you normally would function. Boom. Now we have the disease model. What other models are there? Boy, I'm so glad you asked. Let's go to the moral model. Because this is the one that everybody loved to hype, loved to jump on the bandwagon, loved to be a part of. This was the one that was like, oh, yep, let's make sure that we hold everybody's uh, head under the water for this one. Because the moral model, yes, it absolutely positively has been something that, you know, was, I mean, that's those you know daughters and, and mothers of the alcoholism movement in the eight, late 1800s, early 1900s, this is the stuff that they were talking about was it was a moral failing. And that unfortunately is the way the society decided to ride that one out for quite a long time. And so when we look at the moral model, uh, it is beliefs and judgments that it is uh, a moral decrepitude that the person's just irresponsible or impulsive and engages in careless behavior and they just don't really care. They, there's nothing about them that cares, that, they're, that they have all the personal choice in the world and that their addictive behavior is viewed as being capable of making alternate choices they just choose not to. And that's according to FAC. Um, the model, the moral model is, fa- is foundational for certain religious groups and has been subsequently adopted by the legal system because addiction is seen in a dualistic right or wrong manner. And that's the issue that we have in our society is that we're still fighting the stigma that it's just black or white that, you know, so, okay, so it's either disease or your moral failing, right? Oh, well, they were a functioning alcoholic and they were completely aware of their decisions. So they're just a moral, morally corrupt person, right? But where we want to be mindful is if we're internalizing this as a society, that it's a moral failure, that these people could just make a different choice and it should just be a matter of just waking up one day and saying no more. The problem with that is that we take away the complexity of what addiction actually is. Water break. It was complex. 
there are so many things going on. So we've got the moral model we're all very familiar with. There's a psychological model, and according to the FAC, um, that means it's more of a psychologically based. And this is where I, this is the entire foundation of the show. I come at it that I see it as an attachment issue, behaviors, cognitions, learning processes, psychological drivers um, are the primary cause of addiction. That somewhere in our psychology, something happened that began to rewire us. And when that rewiring happened, we became susceptible more to the addictive substance being able to come into what was already a suffering brain and then finding it weakened, right? Imagine, you know, if, you know, somebody who was raised in an emotionally intelligent family and knew how to have open communication and built resiliency and autonomy and self-reliance, but also knew that they had a strong foundation at home that would support them regardless of what was going on in their lives, right? So that's one family. And let's imagine this has like, you know, a fort back in the day. It had very solid walls. And now imagine you were raised by emotionally unintelligent parents and you didn't feel like you had open communication and maybe they were really strict. So you felt like you didn't have much autonomy, but they weren't around very much. So when they weren't, you felt like it was time to cut loose and be fancy free. And now you're a fort, but your walls are a little weakened, right? Yours are made out of straw. The next one over is made out of steel. And now all of a sudden here comes an addictive substance and it's able to get through the straw wall substantially easier than steel. Now, again, the addictive substance can still get through the steel wall. And that's when we start to look at the developmental model. The developmental model is more about how life progresses and the development of the individual. That it's not necessarily about whether it happens at an early stage, but it's just that something happens at a stage. And that when that's... So here's how it's positive, that there's a vulnerability that is never static and it's always changing, but it can be very, it can vary across a lifespan. So I've literally met with clients who are like, yeah, man, I was perfectly fine until I got in my forties and I had a divorce. And then all of a sudden I started drinking a little too much wine. And next thing you know, I'm snorting cocaine or yeah, everything was, everything was great. You know, and then in my forties, I lost my job or my sixties, my you know wife passed away. And all of a sudden, I found myself, you know, smashing down the jack. Uh, the developmental model says that we're always vulnerable, that there's a vulnerability that is inherent in just being human, because our brain naturally la- will latch on to things that give us a sense of relief. Where our brains are, are literally built to either seek out pleasure or run away from pain. And when we know this thing about ourselves, then we can realize it's like, oh, okay, it's it can be developmental. So the psychological model says that it's rooted in our younger years and it was taught to us by other things, other people, places, and things. Whereas the developmental model says that we're just prone to it. And we have to be consistently mindful of this because it's not necessarily based on just our childhood. Um, and again, the developmental model does stress that the roots of it could have started at a younger age, but it finally took something to break that person. And therefore, you could be just as prone to an addiction at 50 as somebody at 20. The cognitive behavioral model um, discusses how it's a, more about cognitive and behavioral motivations and reinforcers and that people are motivated to take drugs to experience variety 
Uh, there's a self-exploration, that religious insights, that mood-altering experiences, escaping from boredom or despair, uh, the enhancement of creativity, performance, sensory experiences, pleasure. All of these come in with the, the cognitive behavioral model, which is why a lot of people do cognitive behavioral therapy. Because it gets inside your mind with you and helps you talk through and work out the way that you have been experiencing self-exploration and creativity and joy, and then seeking to find those in other areas. So the cognitive behavioral model is directly attached to the cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, And this desire to experience pleasure um, is another explanation connected with this cognitive behavioral therapy and the cognitive behavioral model and how social drinkers and alcoholics often can report alcohol to relax them, even though studies show that alcohol actually causes people to be depressed and anxious and nervous. It's because we're just convincing ourselves of of the outcome we want, even though that's not necessarily the outcome that uh, the product was meant to help us achieve. So, it's very mindful to realize that we have been playing this mental gymnastics with ourselves uh, based off of this cognitive behavioral model that we wanted this effect. I wanted to be more creative or I wanted to have calm or I wanted to feel better. Therefore, I took in this external thing that I convinced myself was providing that. And yes, in the moment when we're smashing down a ton of beers and doing lines with our buddies at two in the morning while playing Guitar Heroes, everything can seem to be quite hunky-dory until it's time to go to bed or we got to get up the next morning and actually be a productive human and all of a sudden our dopamine and our serotonin are fucked and now we feel like shit and what's naturally going to bring us back to pleasure? Going back to the substance. And now the rewiring and the looping begins. Uh, We have the learning model that where you learn it from your primary caregivers, you learn it from society, you learn it from other people, your social circle, that it's actually through social learning um, that people will internalize the values and expectations of their society, right? Through this social learning, and then they acquire these, uh, they try to be adaptive skills, but ultimately these opportunities to weave themselves more within society backfires because the way that they may have been taught to alleviate negative circumstances in their childhood or adolescence or teenage years by watching somebody around them, you know, utilize intoxicating substances. Um, They're learning that, but it's not what they should be learning. They're right. That's that emotionally unintelligent family members teaching emotionally unintelligent family members how to behave. Um, You know, somebody doesn't know how to use a tool properly. uh, Learning from them how to use a jigsaw is probably not the smartest idea. Hey, we're going to, I'm going to show you how to use this drill. And you just sit there and you just squeeze the trigger, but there's no battery in it. You know, you're learning how to live your life based off somebody else who's not living their life appropriately. That's not going to work out good for anybody. So that's the learning model. The psychodynamic model links addiction to ego deficiencies, inadequate parenting, attachment disorders, hostility, homosexuality, masturbation, and so on. Um, According to the book, there's a lot of reasons why this one isn't really widely accepted within um, the scientific community, but mainly because uh, it's difficult to link um, early childhood development um, areas 
that aren't specific to alcoholism and addiction to uh, inadequate parenting, attachment disorders, hostility, homosexuality, masturbation. And in fact, the more I read about this and before I even brought it to you on the show, the more it started to sound like it was trying to get paired with the moral model, right? That, oh, well, if somebody is, you know, I don't know what, masturbates a ton, so now they're going to be prone to drinking. I mean, you know, what somebody is a homosexual, so they're going to be prone to drug abuse. Now, the homosexuality at a young age and realizing this about yourself and not being accepted by society, your social circle, your family, your community could certainly cause a lot of negative emotions inside someone and they they can then go seek out a way to remedy those negative emotions and thus now all of a sudden the addictive substances enter from stage left and therefore that could show an increase within the homosexual community for potential uh, substance use disorders but it, it could be more to do with the fact that the environment wasn't supportive of who they were when they were trying to even figure out who they were than it has to do about who they are being why they used if that does that make sense? Did I, did I say it too confusingly? That basically, just because somebody's gay or a lesbian or any of the other LGBTQ and all that, right? Just because somebody is any of those, I don't think it makes them prone to an addiction as much as perhaps the environment, their social circle not accepting them, causing them to have negative emotions that then became something that they were seeking relief from and then interstage left alcohol and drug abuse. So, we have the personality theory model, the family model, the behavioral model, family system model. The family system model is really interesting. The family system model focuses on the way uh, the families interrelate with one another and um, whether the primary caretaker uh, was primarily involved, was not involved, um, whether they were actually uh, not only that, but what's interesting about the family system model is when I first read about this one, I called it the um, codependent model or the enabling model because there will be, tell me if this sounds familiar to any of y'all. It's like when I remember when I told my mom that I was an addict and she tried to convince me that I was just bored and I needed to leave Gainesville to do something with my life. Now, I'm not saying that she was trying to be the caretaker because she lived thousands of miles away from me, but certainly she didn't want me to be an addict and certainly she wanted to help take care of her son. So agreeing with me that I was an addict would have gone against her own internal representation of how amazing of a son that she had raised. And have you ever had a, somebody in your family or known somebody who was so enabling and so codependent upon that addict's relationship that if the addict decided to get healthy, then all of a sudden they couldn't be the primary caretaker. They couldn't be the person who was enabling them and mothering them or fathering them or just smothering them and always being there to wipe their ass and get them out of jail. And that this person attaches like, hey, the meaning of my life is taking care of this person. And then if the person says, well, I want to go get healthy so you don't have to take care of me anymore. Now the meaning for that person, the enabling the other family member's life, what what are they supposed to focus on? If the mom has been spending all of her time wiping her 35-year-old son's ass and getting him out of trouble and being codependent and enabling, and all of a sudden the 35-year-old says, I'm going to check into rehab, what's that mom going to do? Who's she going to take care of? So within the family system model, you'll actually see there to be pushback within the family because if there's a, sh- a shift or a change in the addict, then that means that the others have to also shift and change. The family disease model, on the other hand, talks about how the family as a complete source of the addiction, that addiction isn't just passed down genetically, but it can actually come from the environmental factors of the entire family. And that it's not enough that 
the addict gets the healing and the help, but the entire family has the disease. And I was actually taught the family disease model when I went through my CRSS training at the University of Alabama. Um, Because I remember one of the guys saying, look, it's not just the addict who needs healing. When there's an addict in the family, the entire family is sick. The entire family needs healing. And I have seen this time and time again. Because whether... You know, like with the daughter who's currently in the addiction center, right? You've got the father who wants to be, you know, all up in it and helping out all. And the mom who's just furious with anger and just starts fights. And they, and the mom and the daughter are always at each other. They just cannot stop with the fighting. She, Mom's just, she's fed up. She's tired of it. She's tired of saving her daughter. And the dad wants to be there and support and support and support, right? They need some counseling too. And we're actually getting them into that because they need to be able to heal their own self. They need it's not enough that their daughter goes off and gets healed because she could go through this entire 90 day. And in fact, we might end up being an 18 month program, but even she goes in 90 days or 18 months, right? If the rest of the family back home hasn't been doing anything to heal themselves, then this person who comes, who went in as an addict and comes out as somebody in a long-term recovery goes right back into an environment of people who still are sick, who haven't gone through any of the healing. So the family disease model says that we need to work on the entire family system. Whereas you've got a family system where maybe the, like in this family I'm just referencing, the dad wants to enable and the mom's fucking tired of it. The family system model says that the dad could actually perpetuate the daughter relapsing and going back to her old ways because he wants to keep taking care of her. Where the mom wanting to start fights and push, 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 push away actually is the opposite of that so tired of being the caretaker that she starts fights. But then that also could be an issue, right? If you have an antagonizer in the family and an enabler in the family, and they're both coming at the daughter from different directions, massive confusion, massive frustration, and eventually the ch- this young lady's brain's going to get overwhelmed and she's going to go back to what she always knew. So the family system model and the family disease model can very much work in tandem. Um, we've already discussed the disease model. We've got the public health model where it's just a matter of education, laws, social taboos can help people not use. Um, and like we discussed the developmental model earlier that at any stage in your life, you could absolutely be susceptible to alcohol and drugs and addiction. Um, then, of course, there's the biological model that just says that um, the genetic theories assume that addicts are constitutionally predisposed to develop dependence on drugs so that it's a biological issue. Uh, of course, we have the genetic model. We're all familiar with that, that it gets passed down um, genetically. Um, the neurobiological model. This is very much, and I want to get you out of here on this one. This neurobiological model talks about how the, uh, it's, this is really, really, really I would would love to have remembered to bring this up during the disease model portion because the neurobiological model is, is complex and it has to do with how neurotransmitters in the brain serve as these chemical messengers. And this is coming directly from the FAC. Almost all addictive drugs, as far as we know, seem to have a primary transmitter target for their actions, meaning that they have a very, very particular part of the brain that they want to get into. Right now we have this area of the brain when addiction occurs, it's in this limbic system, the emotional part of the brain. And again, straight out of the FAC here, the limbic part of the brain refers to an inner margin of the brain just outside the cerebral ventricles. And Ventricles do look a lot like tentacles, if you were to look at them underneath the microscope. And the transmitter dopamine is the key 
in its activity in the limbic system and the development of addiction. And as a person begins to use a drug, changes in brain chemistry in the limbic system begin to occur to lead to the addiction, right? So this neurobiological model literally is talking about how an addictive substance comes in. It rides on these very particular neurotransmitters and targets a very particular part of the brain. It is like at the core part of the disease model. You've also got the sociocultural model, which just talks about how different cultures and subgroups of cultures could be more prone to addiction in certain ways or more prone to certain uses of certain addictive substances. Certainly, um, you know, I know uh, recently I gave a presentation um, that was uh, very focused on UK, the United Kingdom, and it was talking about England and Scotland and Ireland's uh, historical associations with alcohol and drinking. And it's very much tied into those cultures. So when you start looking at the sociocultural model, it is about how certain cultures are more prone to utilizing certain addictive substances more so than others. Whereas like, you know, looking at Central or South America, you might see more prone to cocaine use. Whereas in um, Southeast Asia, you might see more prone to opioid use because they are harvested and grown in those countries. So you could absolutely see how that model would come into play. And I think that's enough of the models. I think it was really important to go through those. Out of those, it's that neurobiological model talking about the limbic system and the neurotransmitters and how that connects to the disease model, how your brain is literally being changed at its core. Your, your code is being rewritten. Alcohol and drugs sat down at your computer. They, you know, they control alt deleted, whatever it takes to get that black screen up, the little green cursor. And they went in there and they started rewriting your code. You can, you can unwrite that code and rewrite new code. It just takes time. But it's important to note for all of these models that they all sort of exist together in our society. Whether we look at it as being a family issue, whether it's a general cultural issue, whether it is a moral issue, or it's a disease model, or it's any, you know, you start looking at any and all of these. It's a behavioral model. It's also got some personality theory models and the psychodynamic models and all of these. They're all working together. They're all working in their own way in tandem. And it's just, it's just so crucial to realize that all of these are happening at once. And so when somebody says, is addiction really a disease? Yes, because these chemicals, these things, they get into our body or these process addictions begin to change our behaviors and it begins to alter our limbic system, the emotional part of our brain. It changes the way that dopamine and serotonin are released and it does this at a cellular neurobiological level. And when that happens, that is in the essence of it's changing the host system. This thing is introduced, it changes the host system, and when you look at the original definition of addiction, when we first started going through an hour ago in this episode, we started talking about how it was chronic, right? And it's all about the way that the brain takes this in, that addiction is chronic. It means that you keep going about it over and over and over again, even though it brings about the horrible, horrible, shitty results. 
<laughs> this chronic relapsing disorder characterized characterized by compulsive drug seeking and use despite adverse consequences. And there's so much more information here. There's these questions, there's level of severity, there's how the the brain gets addicted. There's so much that I could go into. But just realize that when you start to spend an inordinate amount of time seeking alcohol and drugs and that you can't stop using them and that you've got this Right, you, you use them for longer than intended. You try to cut back or stop, but you're unable to do it. You experience cravings and urges for it. Um, you needing more of the substance because you're building up a tolerance, um, having withdrawal symptoms when the substance is not in your body or you're not doing this process addiction, um, spending more time getting and using it and recovering from it than you are living the rest of your life, neglecting responsibilities at home, work, school, continuing to use even when it causes causes your relationships to fall into disarray, uh, giving up on important things that you enjoyed, life goals or social events or sports that you used to enjoy, giving up on these things, uh, using substances in risky environments or doing risky behaviors while on these substances, and continuing to use despite the substance just causing a shit ton of problems in your life, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, all of the above. If these things are happening to you, then you got the addiction. Whether you want to see it through the lens of a disease model or a moral model or a psychodynamic model or a neurobiological model or a family disease model, it doesn't matter. You got it. Now that you know you got it, it's time to seek the healing from it. That's the journey. I could sit here and read you page after page after page of this book. And certainly tonight I have done as much as I could and tried to get these words out of my mouth. And I know that right now I am, my brain is probably only functioning at about 35% if it's lucky. I am cashed. I am spent. But when I read through this book and I see all these people who put all this effort and all this energy into studying this, and I read the all, I mean, I've probably read 50 different scholarly articles to, to inform myself, not just for this podcast, but for the, all the essays. And people have put a tremendous amount of research and effort into figuring out addiction so that we can help heal our society. And we want to see it as a moral failing. And we want to see it as a family's fault. Or we want to do any of these things that take the personal responsibility away from ourselves to choose today to be different. One of my clients today said something, it, 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 uh, I, I might be butchering it up a little bit, but he was like, like, want to be here. He said that during one of our sessions. He's like, you know, I was reading something and it came across and he's like, you know, just want to be here. And I was meeting with another client the other day and then this came out. It's like, you know, we'll pray or we'll beg or we'll ask the universe, whatever our higher power is. If we have one, we will just ask the universe, please let me have this. And then we'll get that. And then we'll complain about having it. Here's the thing. When you check one problem off the list, another 10 are going to show up from the solution you've created. That's just life. 
You can sit here and say, all I want to do is be sober. All I want to do is be sober. And all I want to do is be sober. And then you get sober. And all of a sudden, you have to look around at the wreckage that you've caused. You have to heal your emotions. You have to mend your relationships. You have to fix your credit score. You got to go in and apologize to coworkers or get a whole other job or move to a whole different city, whatever it might be. But you wanted sobriety. And it's not sobriety that sucks. It's just life sometimes. It's just life being life. I woke up yesterday morning hella sad hella depressed. I have no idea why. I mean, none. Yes, I've asked myself what were the first pictures I had in my head when I woke up and what were the first thoughts I had and yada, yada, yada. But again, they were very much just the same old recycled thoughts. So there was nothing new or different about what I was thinking. So what would have caused a whole day? Is it school overwhelming me? Is it a lack of attention toward my business? Is it the fact that I was four days late on the podcast? Is it the fact that I'm just running myself ragged but refusing to admit it? It could be any and all or none. I don't even know. But what's important is that when I get into that funk, that I go out and I find the things that, that I know will help me energize myself or, you know, get my mood back in order. So I went to the gym and I went for my 10,000 steps and I called up some friends and texted some loved ones and I reached out to, you know, team Jesse and was just like, Hey, what's going on with you? I didn't have to tell them that I was sad or depressed. I just wanted to, you know, get some connection in there and, you know, and then sit down in front of the computer and mess around and come up with this whole podcast. But it's like, if you wake up and you're not feeling great, any of these models, or whether addiction's a disease or not, isn't going to magically make you feel better in that moment. Well, I've got a disease, and so uh, I guess this was just inevitable. Nothing is inevitable. Nothing has meaning until we attach meaning to it. So whether knowing that addiction is a disease it helps you feel better about the last X amount of years in your life that you're an addict, then great. What I seek for you to take from all of this is just hope. Hope and a realization that there are a lot of people out there working their asses off trying to figure out ways to help those of us who have been suffering to get into a place of healing. It is certainly why I'm pouring, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of hours. I have estimated that I will have hit my 10,000 hours of sobriety and recovery addiction studying for this master's by the time I get to like the end of my internship and all of that stuff in three years. Because, I mean, I'm literally putting in like already putting in an upwards of like 30, 40 hours a week, not just on essays, there's reading, there's all this other stuff. And then what I've always already been doing, it's like I'm putting in like 50 hours a week. It's insane. But my, I, I, I estimate that, yeah, I would probably, you know, probably be closer to like five or 6,000 hour range on top of the other four or 5,000 I've already put in before I even got into the masters. Like I will have eclipsed that 10,000 hours that somebody once said in a book means that you're an expert, but I have no desire to be considered an expert. I have a desire to be able to take in this information and be able to utilize it to help myself and to help others figure out a better way to realize that there's always an option. There's always another choice. When I hear people say, I just, I I didn't have another choice. Very rarely is that true. Very rarely is, I mean, okay, if you're drowning in a pool and somebody says, why'd you get out of the pool? Well, I was drowning. I didn't have any choice. I had to get out of the pool. Okay, congratulations. You may have found a caveat to my statement. Otherwise, most things are multiple choices. And when if you wake up and you're feeling a little bummed and you're feeling a little depressed, I just want you to realize it's life sometimes. It's not sobriety. 
go find, I was talking to another client about this today, that he was noticing how a lot of people, it seems like they find things that help them heal at the beginning and then they just slowly let those things slip away. Don't let those things slip away. If going to the gym or meditating or riding a bicycle or I don't know, hopping on one foot while you sing happy birthday to yourself in the mirror with sparklers in your hands. If that's what helped you get sober and get into a recovery at the beginning, then continue doing that stuff because it's the power of those things to bring us those little moments of happiness that can mean everything to taking a bad day and flipping it into a good day. As always, I appreciate your time. I hope I didn't dive too deep into this or get too convoluted. I wanted to keep it as organized as possible. I hope I crushed it for you. You can take from it what you will. You can have other people listen to it if they want. Just realize that this country was founded on (laughs) alcohol. (laughs) It was founded on alcohol use. The pilgrims were getting so smashed on the boat that they kicked him off the Mayflower and they dropped him off at Plymouth Rock and said, get the hell off of our boat. You're going to drink all of our beer and we're not going to have anything to drink on the way back to England. And then they got so smashed out of their minds on Christmas Day for so many years in a row that they literally outlawed celebrating Christmas. (laughs) When I see these news channels saying war on Christmas on the TV, I'm like, you don't know shit. You got to go back to the 1600s, man. You think they were you think there was a war on Christmas now? Some dude outlawed it because people were getting too drunk on it. And the alcohol all the way up through the 17 and 1800s until it gets us here today. So I hope this has helped you understand a little bit more about it. I also, of course, am really happy that I get to bring my own little Jesse spin on all of this. As always, if you would like to learn more about all of this stuff that I talk about, neuro-linguistic programming, if you would like to learn NLP from me, I absolutely offer opportunities for that. If you would like some one-on-one or group coaching, I also have opportunities for that. Feel free to reach out to me at jessemogul.com slash ask me. Um, If that doesn't work from time to time, I am running some systems checks on it. And if you ever go over there and it says that it's not working, go and send me an email um, from sobriety to recovery at gmail.com. Set up one just for y'all. So jessemogul.com slash ask me, or you can go over to from sobriety to recovery at gmail.com. As always, inclusivity over exclusivity, the power of positive energy, release and flow. Every day is the greatest day of our lives because we wake up sober. Shout out to Sunshine. Shout out to Robert. Glow on. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. 